Shalom Aleichem. Welcome to The Schmooze, the Yiddish Book Center's podcast. I'm Lisa Newman, and today I'm visiting with Jeremy Dauber. Jeremy is a professor of Jewish literature and American studies at Columbia University. His books include The Worlds of Shalom Aleichem, a biography of the Yiddish author, Jewish Comedy, A Serious History, both finalists for the National Jewish Book Award, and most recently, American Comics, A History. He's on the board of the Yiddish Book Center, and his relationship with the center goes back almost 30 years. He was there as a summer intern in the early days of the Yiddish Book Center. Welcome, Jeremy. It's a real pleasure to be here. Hi, Lisa. It's so great to be here. So always uh, goes without saying that it's great to speak with you. I know you've done lectures, books, and all sorts of things with us here at the center. This is a great read, and I am really excited to talk to you about it. Um, and what a topic to sort of tackle. Um, <laughs> yeah, I how many years? In the, yeah, how many years in the making? I probably about four to five years in in one way of the actual writing of the book. But uh, in other ways, you know, I've been teaching a class at Columbia on this for about ten years. Uh, uh, maybe a little, a little more even. And I've been a comics fan all my life. So, you know, it depends on how you count. Um, so, yeah, the, the book is, if I may describe it as the sweeping story of cartoons, comic strips and graphic novels and their century long hold on the American imagination. Um, and I'd love to start by asking you to talk about the early hold of comics on you. Well, you know, I, um, in, in some ways, uh, you know, uh, my story uh, really is a kind of story of American comics, which is a, as a really little kid, my first memory of comics is in the newspapers, uh, really sort of sitting around on a, you know, a Sunday morning and getting this, that big comic section and reading all those sort of comic strips. And then pretty early on, I got really interested in superheroes. Uh, and I loved reading uh, comic books. I was what they used to call uh, a Marvel zombie. Um, in that I would, you know, I would read everything that the company put out. And then, you know, I kind of, uh, as I was getting a little, a little older, right, high school and thinking, oh, well, these are too, too, you know, juvenile for me. That was the year that not only uh, did sort of this new wave of superhero comics come out, this Watchmen, this Dark Knight Returns, but also uh, Art Spiegelman's Mouse. Um, and that was, uh, you know, a very, very powerful experience to show me that this medium that I had loved, I don't know if I would put it this way, but that medium that I loved really could could talk about all sorts of things and things which were very serious that were very close to my home and sort of growing up in a Jewish environment, Jewish background. Um, and in fact, one of my earliest projects for the Yiddish Book Center was to be involved with a list of 100 great Jewish books. Uh, and I was reminded recently that I campaigned to have Mouse be included uh, on the list because it really impacted me so much. Uh, and then I went on, you know, I went to college, I went to graduate school, and that was this period where uh, comics were continuing to have this sort of greater maturity. Uh, and soon enough, I said, you know, this is a, a real sort of American art form. Uh, there's really wonderful things to say about this. Uh, and I got very lucky that when I decided to think about teaching about it, uh, the former president of DC Comics, a guy named Paul Levitz, uh, had just left DC after many years uh, and was looking to teach. Uh, and so we started team teaching a class together. Uh, and it, that, that we, which we continue to do off and on, and which has been a wonderful, wonderful experience, very educational for me. And I said, uh, oh, you know what, there's a book in this. And, and, and lo and behold, I guess there was. Um, so one of the things that I found really interesting, um, you know, I know of the golden age of comics, um, but lesser known to me was the idea that you trace this back to the Civil War. And I wonder if we could start there and get and then bring ourselves forward just a bit. Sure. 
You know, I, I thought that it was really interesting to start the story of American comics with one of the first phenomena, national phenomena of a comic or uh, becoming really sort of very impactful on the national stage. And when I started thinking about that, you know, I really looked at this guy, Thomas Nast, um, whose name, his reputation may be a little bit less than it used to be, but for many, many decades, uh, you know, he was a household name. Uh, and one of the reasons he was, was because he, he, he drew these comics um, for, particularly for Harper's Magazine. Um, and in many ways, they were extremely responsible for the maintenance and, and the growing of morale uh, of the Northern side during the Civil War. Um, you know, people say, you know, a picture has an impact sometimes that words don't have on the printed page. Uh, and Nast's uh, cartoons were indelible. One of the most famous ones um, was, uh, it's funny to talk about this on the Yiddish Book Center's podcast, but Santa Claus visiting sort of the troops. Um, and Nast was responsible for these kind of images of Santa Claus and Uncle Sam that we know of today. And I thought that was a really useful testament uh, to the way that comics really could shape kind of, you know, the American imagination and in fact, some of the course of American politics, both Lincoln uh, and, and Ulysses Grant really said that Nast was in, incredibly influential uh, in determining sort of the outcome in the course of the Civil War. Uh, and, and because the story of comics starts um, in many real ways with these weekly magazines uh, and then moves later on to the newspapers in which many of us first encounter them, that was where I wanted to start the, the story to remind the story. The other thing I would, the last thing I would say is that Nast was also someone who engaged sometimes in ethnic stereotype. Uh, and so it was also a, a cautionary note about the power that comics has that's not always for good. Um, and that can also sort of inculcate these kind of images uh, that aren't always so nice. Uh, and that was an important thing to keep in mind as I sort of set off on the story of the book, too. Yeah, I think there's probably a lot to be gleaned about cultural history through yeah. images represented both um, yeah, in comics and comic books. So the phrase golden age of comics is bandied about a lot, I think. Um, I'd love to hear how you define that and also what it meant in terms of sort of content readers and, and reflecting the times. Yeah, well, you know, it's funny because one of my, I'm smiling, you, you can see Lisa, uh, but one of the, the, the things that, that I, I love, one of my favorite sayings is this whole phrase uh, that the golden age of science fiction is 12, right? That is to say, whatever age you were when you had this sort of, that was the golden age. And I think that that's very true. But that said, um, we really do think about that phrase when you're a, a, a historian of this kind of medium uh, as a particular period, really in sort of the late 1930s. Uh, uh, let's say through, let's say the part of the 40s and, and, you know, and, and maybe even into the part of the 1950s. Um, and, you know, in, in many ways, that is a very important moment in comic history, comics history. Uh, it's the birth of the superhero. It's sort of this, you know, this incredible colonization of, 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 of heroes into the public imagination. It leads to these sort of romance comics and crime comics and horror comics, even though they're not frequently thought of in that way. But it also is a continuity. Um, and one of the things I wanted to do in the book was to say how much of this really is an organic development out of these comic strips that were in everybody's newspapers um, and that everyone, and I'm talking everyone from presidents through Supreme Court justices to sort of your average uh, householder, male, female, young, old on the street, everybody read. Uh, and in some ways, to me, that was also a golden age of comics uh, because you could not be all courant with American culture 
without uh, uh, really understanding what was going on in the page in the comics pages of these newspapers. Um, and in a way, in certain ways, that did not have the kind of lowbrow connotations the comics would later have, or the kind of snotty things that even some you'll see someone like Martin Scorsese, always talking about Marvel movie, says, you know, this is just part of the landscape. Um, and that really was a kind of golden age that I think, and we may get back to this, we're only coming to again uh, now in certain kinds of uh, ways. But of course, what you're talking about, which I think is absolutely right, is saying when all of a sudden, you know, this this kid created, this hero, excuse me, created by two Jewish kids from Cleveland, goes on, takes over the world, uh, and, and, and really just starts a revolution. So good segue into the question about the Jewish connection to the history of American comics. Yeah. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on why you think so many of these creators, and I think it's safe to say, were Jewish. Yes, uh, it is absolutely safe to say in this first wave of comic books. And again, I, I really do want to make that distinction because the comic strip, which as we're saying, was sort of a more uh, accepted thing. Not Maybe not surprisingly, it was more socially accepted, it was more socially valorized, was not really very Jewish in the 1920s and the 1930s. Um, and like a lot of socially valorized things, you know, there were kinds of more barriers to entry. Uh, in certain kinds of ways, as opposed to the comic book, which was a kind of starts out really as a kind of low class endeavor. And and that was the story of American mass culture, that that afforded opportunities for discriminated minorities. And in 1938, Jews are a discriminated minority, unquestionably, right, uh, in sort of these social kinds of comics to come into. And so that's part of it, you know, creative talent that people you know, fled, came into this medium. And then there are so structural discrimination as part of the story. Network effects is part of the story. Nobody is saying, we need the best person to write these stories that five-year-olds are going to read and are going to get thrown out the next day. That was not the way that this was going on. Um, it was, hey, my wife's cousin needs a job. Uh, can you can you bring him in? And that literally is the story of, of Stan Lee Lieber, who was later known as Stan Lee, who, of course, becomes a major figure in comics history. Uh, obviously, had a lot of talent, too, but, but that was a lot of how this... Uh, really began. So that was th those network effects and structural things. Uh, those are other kinds of things. Um, so I think that's that's a lot of the answer to that question. One of the questions that I think a lot of critics think about is what role now that we have all these Jews there, right? What role did their Jewishness have on the material that they're doing? And, and, and maybe surprisingly for um, uh, really a scholar of Jewish studies and someone who's, you know, really loves Jewish literature, my answer is a little bit less than less Jewishly uh, engaged than a lot of people on this. I actually think that by and large, unless you say that the strategy of wholeheartedly throwing away any Jewish content to be fully Americanizing is a Jewish strategy, which, okay, you could say that, um, not, so, not so much. They really are much more interested in sort of taking from the popular culture of the time. The one big asterisk to that, which I think is a really important one, is that I tell my students this all the time, is that Looking back, it's hard to remember how much purchase isolationism had uh, in the years leading up to World War II uh, in different corners of America, not just corners, in lots of parts of America. Um, after Pearl Harbor, of course, that all changed. But between 1938 and 1940, it really, there was a lot of isolation. Um, and I think that the comic books were much less isolationist. Um, they were much more let's intervene, let's fight Hitler uh, than a lot of the other parts of American culture. And I don't think that was coincidental. I think a lot of the Jews who were in the business, they had relatives in Europe that they knew, 
Uh, they understood sort of the menace that Hitler had in a way that other parts of America did not have. Uh, and I think that in terms of colonizing the American imagination, they help prepare people eventually for saying Hitler really is a menace. Uh, we need to get into the war. We can get into the war. Uh, and in that sense, you know, that 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 shift like Thomas Nast and that, that northern thing, you know, was in, uh, you know, an inalienable good, um, for, uh, you know, uh, for, for the country and for, for everything. Um, for our listeners, um, I would mention that we're recording this um, on Zoom. So Jeremy and I are in different states, um, but can see one another. And I just um, I will confess, I laughed um, because you just said something that was so interesting to me personally about how Jews got introduced and said, you know, hey, have them write something. Um, because my father, that is exactly he graduated. He had a play optioned on Broadway. The option and rehearsal went went bust. Um, and grandfather got him an introduction. He wrote a date for Judy and the rest, as they say, is history. So um, it, I, I really appreciated hearing that little bit of. Um, yeah. And again, and Lisa's dad for our yeah. listeners was a major, major writer of comedy. In fact, he holds the Guinness Book of World Records, I think, still for the most comic books uh, ever written. Right. But but again, not, not to not to bring it back to me or my dad, although he would have appreciated that. Um, <laughs> but it's just it's really um, I mean, that's one of the things I took away from the book, Jeremy. It was fascinating to read it, having had some window into this um, in my everyday life and knowing the history of it um, and the way that you map this out um, to me was just fascinating. And you really, really dig deep into a lot of aspects of this from many different angles, which is fascinating. So thank you. Thank you for recalling all of this. I, I then wanted to ask you about collaborations um, because I think, again, knowing this, there were writers and you know, they're cartoonists, they're illustrators. Some strips were written by one person and illustrated by another, um, you know, uh, and then there were editors. Um, there's a really rich history to that kind of collaborative process. And again, I think you have some really interesting um, chapters about this uh, in the book. So talk a little bit, if you would. Thank you. I mean, I think that, you know, it, it, it's a really interesting question because over the 150 year or so history of comics in America, you have a lot of models of what it means to produce these things that are on, roughly speaking, paper uh, in front of you. Nowadays, it's a little different, but roughly right paper. And but basically, they, they come into two rough flavors. One of them is where uh, an individual does almost everything themselves writing and art, let's say, put simply. Um, and the other is some kind of uh, combination and collaboration of, of, of different talents. Um, and, uh, you know, there are both artistic and aesthetic ramifications uh, in terms of those things. Uh, you know, it's very easy to say who gets the credit for something like Peanuts. Uh, it's much harder to say. And in fact, there's a lot of ink spilled about it. Who gets the credit for Spider-Man? Um, that's a much harder thing, right? And that also has financial ramifications. Uh, it's very easy to say who gets the money uh, for peanuts or which combination of institutions get the money. It's a lot harder to say how you divide up, uh, uh, you know, if, uh, you know if, 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 if there's something that is sort of a, put together by a bunch of collaborators. And then, uh, particularly as these things take off, through a corporation that continues to have these characters post-date the original creators, whether by death or whether just simply by 
uh, termination of, uh, of employment. Um, and all of these questions uh, are, are, are worked out, I think it's fair to say, quite messily uh, over the course of many decades. But uh, I, and I was interested in both of these aspects, the aesthetic and the financial and the, the institutional ones, um, because uh, frequently uh, they lead also to certain kinds of critical, uh, critic-oriented decisions that we often make. We say, well, is a work of art greater um, if it was made by a single person, a uh, single unitary vision, than by a, by a group of people? My personal feeling is that that is not a fair question to ask. They're really apples and oranges. But uh, certainly there is sometimes you feel in some of the writing some bias uh, uh, towards one or towards the other. Uh, you know, in certain kinds of ways. What matters to me as a cultural historian is sort of the ramifications of those kind of things. So when, for example, in the 1960s, the underground, the countercultural underground begins to create comics, they say, look, we have looked at the business arrangements of these collaborators in corporate world. We don't like this at all. We're going to look back to the comic strip models uh, where really you can partner with a syndicate roughly. You can, you can get a lot of the money to yourself. And that was also effectuated more easily because many of those individuals were both writers and artists. So it was a lot easier for them to do uh, in a certain way. Assigning exactly who gets the money when a new character like, uh, let's say, Venom, the supervillain in Spider-Man is created. How does that get, you know, uh, or some other kind of character. Actually, Venom is a little bit of a different case. But, but uh, um, you know, that, that, becomes, that becomes much more complicated to do. And what what are your thoughts about sort of, you know, they, they love to bandy about the narrative arc or what have you. But if you look at this cultural history and you started in the Civil War and your book really brings us up into contemporary scene, it's it's morphed, it's changed. It, yeah, you know, there are, as you say, corporate constructs which definitely impose themselves in the 50s. Um, with, you know, code of conduct and all of the rest of it, what's acceptable, what's not, where is it, where is it now in your mind? So, you know, it's a great question. And I think that, you know, there are two phenomena that I think are both fascinating to me, uh, if you look now. At, and, and, and the first of them is that if you look at sort of the most famous comic book characters, the most famous comic characters, um, the vast majority of people who are familiar with them are familiar with them because of media that are not comics. Um, so to put it another way, more people know about Iron Man from the movies uh, than they do from the comic books, vastly more people. And that's, and, and that does not seem that that will change. And that is a very interesting phenomenon for the role that comics have in these gigantic, especially corporate comics uh, in these gigantic sort of institutions in which they are the, uh, intellectual property uh, tale, or you know that, that that is being wagged by the the, the movie and television industry dog. Um, so that's one. The second thing is that if you told me as a kid that you would be able to go to a public library and see a wall full of graphic novels, uh, or you were able to go to a bookstore and see a wall full of graphic novels, or to, or to go to my kids' schools and have them regularly say, "Well, of course, we're going to teach this graphic novel as part of our curriculum." You know, this would have been uh, God Aiden, I think I can say that uh, in the Yiddish Book Center's podcast. This would have been paradise. Um, so um, that those two things, I think, have changed. Uh, uh, so it, the, the future for comics, um, as, as it stands, I think is inordinately bright. 
and, and we can talk a little bit more if we want to about how the internet and how, you know, has even, I think in my opinion, made it brighter. Um, certain formats of comics, however, uh, I think are being de-accentuated as part of the center of the story uh, in favor of other kinds of formats. So that, that I think is the interesting story that we're still figuring out. Do you want to expand on the web? Sure, I'm happy to. I mean, I, I think that, you know, one of the things that was part of the structural thing that you and I were talking about before, about your dad, about other, right, is that for all sorts of reasons, network effects, technological reasons, you really had a very small number of people who were participating in the cultural and intellectual life of comics. Uh, you had to be close to where they were being produced. You had to be close to where they were printed. Uh, if you were a writer in Kenosha, you know, you just weren't going to get an assignment because it was going to take you three days for the mail to come with the, hey, you're going to write the script, you have to mail it back if there are any, it was just, you know, forget it. Um, nowadays, you know, first of all, you can live anywhere. And if you are doing great work, uh, especially on the visual side, um, you can put it up on 500 different platforms. And if a billion people notice it, if 10 million people notice it, the companies are going to come calling. Right. Um, and so that leads to a kind of democratization of talent that I think, you know, was never possible before the Internet. And with that comes a kind of diversity of, for lack of a better phrase, behind the camera talent that really allows for different kinds of stories to be told. Uh, and, and, and this is not a knock uh, by any on the stories that were being told before. Right? People have their stories and that's the stories that they can tell. But as a consumer, you love new stories. And so you want to hear uh, all the new stories uh, that you can. And, and it's amazing to just see what, what this possibility affords, things that you never would have thought of. Um, and, and, and so I think that kind of democratization that the technology is flattened, you know, is, you know, is an unadulterated boom. There are certain toxicities about some of the responses to some of those things that, that are adulterated in terms of their boom, but, uh, 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 their boom. but, but this, I think, yeah. I'm a big fan. So always curious to ask the question, when you set out to write this book, you had one thing in mind or you, you had a direction. Were there surprises or redirects or, you know, one pivotal moment as you wrote this that made it coheve, coheve, come together? Yeah. <laughs> Excuse my. Um, you know, I, I, the, 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 the thing that was the most surprising to me was, and it shouldn't have been, but nonetheless it was, was how deeply, again, I apologize for using this phrase uh, on a Yiddish Book Center podcast, but how deeply Catholic the, um, the creators of comics were about their influences and about their loves. Uh, you know, so one of the arguments that I was trying to make from the beginning was, okay, you know, this is this big tapestry, it's all part of one big story. But really, when you dug into interviews with the independent and alternative people, you really found them saying, I grew up with these corporate comics. I love these corporate comics. I'm just fans of these things in a way very frequently that fans of theirs are not. We're not and are not. They say, oh, well, I wouldn't touch, you know, Walt Disney comics. You, say, you know, who would touch them? The people who you idolize. Right. And then conversely, you know, a lot of the mainstream comics people, uh, you know, all along are looking at these independent comics, these alternative comics, they're saying, my gosh, this stuff is amazing. And, you know, at, at different points, they're saying, well, I wish we could do this, you know, but we can't because of the code, because of other kinds of things. Or uh, I don't want to do this, but, you know, a visual technique here is inspiring me and, you know, to, to, to come in my own work. 
Um, and, and, and it was surprising. Maybe again, it shouldn't have been. But I, even when I started, I thought that it would be more hived off uh, than it actually seems uh, to have been. And maybe I shouldn't have been surprised by that, as I say, but, but there it is, I was. Um, and so that was, and then, you know, there are thousands, and I hope I put this in the book, you know, of flashbulbs of revelation of particular um, texts, of particular comics, of works that you discover that you just didn't know about. Um, that, that, that really, you just say, my, my, my gosh, you know, the, these, these things are, are, are just unbelievable. Uh, and I can't believe I never knew about the talents of, let's say, Lynn Shevley, who was a, a groundbreaking feminist, uh, uh, cartoonist from the uh, underground cartoonist from the late 1960s or mm-hmm. 1970s, one of the funniest cartoonists of all time, you know, and just, man, and I'm glad I got the chance to, you know, maybe a couple more people who read the book will now know about her. Uh, and, 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 and discover her work for themselves. And, and, and that's just a great happiness. And I imagine it will continue to evolve, change, and find new, find new means of expression, yeah? Yeah, well, you know, I mean, one of the things that really was fun was like, there was a point where uh, the, the end of this, is, as, as one can see from the book, was written sort of in the first uh, uh, blush, uh, first waves of the coronavirus. Uh, and, you know, at that point, uh, when you had to stop the book, you know, books take a long time to get edited and published and all that, uh, and printed and all that. You know, when I said that off, I was like, boy, I don't know what's going to happen to the comic book stores. Um, I don't know what's going to happen, right? I mean, it just, who knows what's going to happen. It turned out that they seem to be doing okay, at least as of now, um, which is great. Uh, you know, things like Webtoons that have only become more popular in the last year uh and you don't see any sign of that going away um if i had stopped the book in 2015 um you might one might have said you know a movie uh you know with a with a black cast uh, even a marvel movie how well is that going to do really you know you might have been concerned about it um you know now black panther's success really showed that uh, people were much more open uh to that kind of storytelling uh than perhaps uh, one, one in one cynical moments might have suggested that they might be. So, uh, you know, as you say, it's just going to keep, keep going and uh, you just have to stop somewhere. It's funny. It makes me think um, when you mentioned Black Panthers, that there is such a really long history um, with crossover in media. I mean, mm-hmm. television, you know, the golden age of comic books for me was, you know, all the comic books that were based on television shows or television shows that were based on a comic book character. Then it goes into the movies. Um, uh, yeah. And, and all the merchandising and marketing and stuff like that. I think that's a hundred percent right. I mean, you know, something that I, I wish I had had more space to talk about really. And I mentioned it some, and I talk about it a little bit, but not, not as much as I would have loved to were all those great comics from the fifties the and the sixties and the seventies that were based on comic you know, cowboy comics that are based on Roy Rogers and Jerry Lewis and Dean Martin comics. And, you know, uh, you know, there, and I think that frequently these are not sort of paid any attention to, but they are, they were read by many, many people. They had great influence. They were, uh, you know, they told stories that were entertaining and that sometimes were as entertaining and meaningful and profound and silly and, you know, as, as any of the other comics. So, um, you know, uh, the book was already big enough. <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah. Um, um, and, and it's so, it's so interesting to think of, you know, comics in 
in a newspaper because it almost allows for people to read them because it comes in the newspaper. So you can't say, nope, we can't buy that comic book, but oh, it's great. And, you know, people would be funny about admitting to reading the quote funnies. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, what they, I love about, oh, sorry, I didn't, please. You no, know, that's okay. That, yeah. What I love also about that, that comic in the newspapers thing <laughs> was that, you know, you had, 12 different comics, I'm talking about in the Sunday sections, 12 mm -hmm. different, also on the daily page, of different styles, different visual styles, different comic or tonal styles, different kinds of subjects, different pitched audiences. And, you know, everybody had the one or two they skipped. There's no question about that. Right. But, but overall, you know, you read them all. Uh, and there was a way in which, you know, you have a nine-year-old, uh, you know, who's reading Mary Worth. Uh, alongside Calvin and Hobbes. I mean, they don't like Mary Worth that much, right? But they're still reading it. Um, and and I think that that was a wonderful thing, actually, for um, growing readers and in some ways growing humans um, to say, you know, all this material is yours and all of this you should be looking at uh, in a way that, uh, you know, as amazing as it is to have a kid's graphic novel section in the library, you, that you've given up uh, in a certain way. Um, you know, I'll still take it as a, as a, as a trade. Um, well, thank you again. The name of the book for our listeners is American Comics, A History. It's available through the Yiddish Book Center's online and on-site bookstore. You can find it at shop.yiddishbookcenter.org and wherever really good books are sold everywhere. Um, so again, American Comics, A History, fascinating read. Thank you once again for yet another book. Um, <laughs> and we look forward to the next. Can't wait. Thank you so right. much. Stay well. You have been listening to The Schmooze, a production of the Yiddish Book Center in Amherst, Massachusetts. To learn more about this podcast and to subscribe, visit YiddishBookCenter.org. I'm Elizabeth Carteropoli. Until next time, be well and be healthy.